0: This is the Zen Nova Scotia podcast with talks by Cohn Franz. If you would like to support and be part of our community, you can start by visiting ZenNovaScotia.com. Just a few weeks ago, uh, there was an argument online between two Zen priests I know. And it started with one of them, who is a Soto Zen priest, but who teaches koans, which is a little bit outside of the standard curriculum, making the case that that Dogen also used koans in his, his teaching, Dogen, the, the founder of, of this particular tradition. And so he pointed to all these uh, different statements in different texts and said, look, Dogen used koans. And then the other priest kind of got up in arms about this and he said, no! <laughs> and he started pointing to all his little, little, uh, favorite quotations and made his pitch for how Dogen would never have done that. And this is just, uh, a story. And I watched this with some, I don't know what the word is. Dismay is too much too strong a word, but but a little bit of sadness, because I think that we we fall into these things a lot. And I think that the the conversation was mistaken from the beginning for two reasons. The first is that it speaks to a kind of a kind of essentialism, wherein we imagine that there is something that is a true there is true Soto Zen. It exists. And it surely existed in the 1200s. And if we can just figure out what that is, then we have found the truth of the tradition. It's somehow floating in space and waiting for us to grab it. And this is, to my mind, patently absurd. This is a tradition that has evolved and that came out of an evolution of a larger tradition. And particularly when we are told that we should surpass our own teachers, the idea that we should roll back 800 years to find the best version of this tradition would seem to be an admission from the start that we have failed. So that bothers me a little bit. But the other part, and and the thing that was really at the heart of this conversation, is the idea that we can understand what Dogen meant and that Dogen was always right, which also strikes me as absurd. The chances that a man who lived in the 1200s was always right about everything uh, seem very low to me. There might have been some things he wasn't aware of, might have been some things... he he missed we use him in a very selfish way right everybody does and I'm taking this moment to acknowledge it on behalf of all Zen teachers who either will nod in agreement or just turn their head When someone sits in this seat, they don't turn to Dogen and say, here's a place where I am deeply challenged and I have no idea what this means. We use him, we use Dogen as a platform to say our own understanding of something. We use him as a filter. In one way, that's a mistake. Because the danger of that is that then I go home and I continue to only read Dogen in a way that agrees with what I already think, right? Even if I don't have a highlighter in my hand, I kind of have one in my mind. And I notice little, quote, little, little passages that confirm or affirm something that I already believe. And I think, oh, that's a good one. Right. That's the wrong way to read Dogen. What you should be doing is you should be seeking out the parts that make no sense to you. You should be seeking out the parts that bother you a lot and spending time with those. But the other place where I think this gets confusing, our relationship to Dogen, is that it's actually very nice to have someone like this Who we put on this pedestal and we kind of assume that, that what he's saying is true and beautiful and poetic. Because then when we read him, we make it true. Right? We don't get to know what he meant. Scholars have done amazing things with Dogen. Amazing in the last, even in the last few decades. There are lots of moments in, he's very, he writes very beautiful language, but some of it is, is so confusing as to be nearly nonsensical. And what they've found, just very recently, because now we have access to corpuses of Chinese texts, is that many, many times, when we thought Dogen was just being creative, he was quoting. He was quoting texts long forgotten. But ancient Chinese had no punctuation. It had no quotation marks. It didn't even have commas or periods. And now they can go and they can find the passage... And then, can say, oh, he was just, he was referencing something that everyone in the room knew. That's very valuable, but it still doesn't mean that we know his mind, right? We don't know his mind, but we can use him as a way of figuring out our own. And when he writes something that challenges us, and then we find ourselves in the position of trying to present it as if it is true, the investigation and sometimes the acrobatics that we have to do to make that work are in themselves potentially very valuable. We're adopting something that is not necessarily our own and we're trying to soak it up as best we can, as clumsily as we can. I say all this by way of introducing a text uh, called Fukan Zazengi. This is usually translated as universally recommended instructions for Zazen. Gi, the Gi at the end means instructions or the way of doing something, the manner in which we do it. So that's Zazengi, and there are a few texts that are something, something, Zazengi. And Fukan literally means it's universal and recommendation. So we usually translate this as universally recommended instructions for Zazen. But that doesn't necessarily mean that we're supposed to shout this from the top of, of a building. We can also understand this to mean that that these, these instructions are true regardless of context. That it doesn't matter. Who we're talking to. It doesn't matter what country we're in. It doesn't matter whether it's 800 years ago or today. That this is the, the essential point. Dogen wrote a few texts about, about zazen specifically. There's this one, Kan zazengi. There's another one called Shobogenzo zazengi. There's another called, uh, zazenshin. Shin, shin meaning, like, a, a needle for acupuncture. It's commonly translated as the lancet of Zazen. And then uh, Kazan, who is the other founder of this tradition, also wrote one called Zazen Yojinki, which is very good, but has a very different feeling. And Dogen himself was always trying to, I don't know if he was trying to figure it out or if he was trying to perfect it, but this text was evolving over his lifetime. So the earliest version of this that we know is different in not huge ways, but in noticeable ways, from the latest version of it, from before his death. And I mention that only because if he had lived 20 years longer, we would have had another version. right? He was evolving in his relationship to the practice, and he was evolving as a teacher. And it may be that he was evolving in his own understanding of Zazen, which I think is wonderful. We can see this as a work in progress, but it's a work in progress through us. I just want to talk about the beginning today, and it's not my intention to take an academic approach to this. There are a lot of little references that we could go into, and I know some of them, and I'll mention some of them. But mostly I want to talk from my own experience, which is maybe the more honest way anyway. The first line is really good. The way is originally perfect and all-pervading. There's so much in this line. I'm going to say we could stop there. It might get you to the same place. The way is originally perfect and all-pervading. First of all, we know immediately that our idea of way from here forward is not our common understanding of a way. It's not a path that takes you to some place, right? Once you set foot on the path, you've arrived. Or else it could not be originally perfect. If it is a means to something else, it is not originally perfect, nor is it all pervading. Which is the really big thing. The road is everywhere. The way is originally perfect and all-pervading means that nothing is lacking and you are already fully present where you need to be. We can spend our entire lives trying to connect to that. How could it be contingent on practice and realization? I've spoken of this before, but the story of Dogen, the myth of Dogen, whether it's true or not, it's a good story, is that as a young man who had entered the Buddhist priesthood early and had been... uh, very thoroughly exposed to the teachings he had a question from his teens why is it that we have to practice Buddhism if there is this doctrine that says that enlightenment is already always present the doctrine of original enlightenment that we already have Buddha nature if it's there why do we have to do anything why can't we just watch TV why can't we sleep all day? Where, why, is the, why is there this this dynamic, this, uh, this sense of urgency? And the story goes that he went around to teachers in Japan and just could not get a good answer. And that he went around China then looking for answers. And what he came to Essentially, what's the practice and realization are the same thing. The practice is not a means to an end. The practice is the whole thing. So, first of all, we can understand that practice is being subverted here in the same way that way is being subverted and then we can see that way and practice are the same if the way is all pervading and perfect and if practice is realization that's very narrow math <laughs> right how could it be contingent on practice and realization The true vehicle is self-sufficient. The way doesn't need anything from you to be more realized, to be more full. It's complete. What need is there of special effort? Now this is interesting. Because if we read Dogen, we see that Dogen is very interested in effort. The practice he recommended was not easy. But here he's making a point of suggesting, in a way, that it is. And we can, again, try to absorb that. Indeed, the whole body is free from dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? This is very nice. This is a reference to uh, a very famous story that happened around the sixth patriarch. So this is... Uh, Twenty-one generations prior to, no, 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 yeah, roughly prior to Dogen. Uh, And six generations after Bodhidharma came to China, around a student called Hui Neng. Hui Neng is a very important figure in the tradition. He could not read or write, but he lived in the temple and he cleaned and he did his best and he wasn't treated very well. And the, the teacher at that temple, the abbot said that whoever could write a verse that was true would become his successor. And one of the students in the monastery wrote this nice little verse about how we, uh, through the practice of the Buddha Dharma, we, we wipe a mirror clean. We polish the mirror. And, the next morning, everybody read it out loud and everyone said, ooh, that's a really good poem. Yeah. He's going to win. <laughs> and then, but Hui Neng, he knew that this was, this wasn't quite right. And so that night, he got someone to write something for him because he couldn't write it himself. And he wrote, or his verse was, uh, essentially this, that the mirror is already Originally, perfectly clean. So how could there be any dust on it? And his, the teacher saw that and recognized right away that this was this guy was the goods. But also knew that it would go so badly, that it would be so dangerous to hand this guy the stuff that he handed him, the robe and the bowl, in the dark of night and said, Run! <laughs> and Hui Neng had to escape and spent years... Essentially on the Lamb as the next successor in the lineage of the Buddha until finally he was able to kind of pop up again and have a career as a as a teacher. So what I love about this is of he's he's referencing something very famous and very classical. He's saying, indeed, the whole body is free from dust. Who could believe in a means to brush it clean? But what I think is so beautiful is he's referring to the mirror as the body. <laughs> So even there, he's taking this opportunity to not put realization out there. Right? He's bringing it as close as he possibly can. Wherever it's going to happen, it's going to happen. It's, it's here. <laughs> right? There is no other location for action. There is no other location for realization. This is your home. <laughs> right? It's not your house. <laughs> it's this. It is never apart from this very place. What is the use of traveling around to practice? Well, first, you, we understand that the body is this very place. You can just sit down. <laughs> And nothing is missing. But he's also poking fun at himself a little bit here, maybe. Because he did. He got up and he went to China. (laughs) Right? He did the thing that that everybody that he's saying don't do. (laughs) He went across the ocean and he traveled around in a land that was not his to get this thing so that he could come back and say, you don't need to go anywhere. Right? Right? And needless to say, I always smile a little bit when I read this kind of stuff from Dogen because I did the same thing. And I'm glad I did. But maybe Dogen would have have told me to stay where I was. And yet, if there is a hair's breadth deviation, it is like the gap between heaven and earth. So even though it's everywhere, and even though it's already present, he's saying there's something precarious about this. We can still miss the mark. And then he goes on to explain, if the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. And this really goes to the heart of practice and the heart of the teachings. Moving beyond preference. It doesn't mean, it doesn't mean that there is no preference. Moving beyond preference doesn't mean that you, you stifle the idea that you really, really like chocolate ice cream. Moving beyond preference is being able to bring the same joy to vanilla ice cream that you do to chocolate. Moving beyond preference is being able to be generous in the face of things you don't like as well as things that you do. It's equanimity in the face of hatred as well as in the face of love. That's moving beyond preference. It's becoming bigger than your preferences. Holding a space that is larger than attraction and aversion. So that you can hold those things that you want and the things that you don't want. He says, if the least like or dislike arises, the mind is lost in confusion. There is no more attractive scent to us than a judgment about something. Right? This is the, you know, when you have the the image of dogs, you know, suddenly says, squirrel, you know. And they forget everything in their entire lives up to that moment. Right? That's us. If you see the thing that you most want, in that moment, the rest of your mind is flushed out. Everything is gone. And you develop, and you, you go, what seems, with this almost laser clarity toward that object, but it's not clarity, (laughs) right? It's, It's an addictive state. And in exactly the same way, when you encounter the thing that you do not want, the thing about which you have created a judgment and you have decided, this is not for me, when you encounter that, all the complexity of your mind is shut down. There is no reason to get into the complexity of it, because you have made this decision long ago. Right? And you know that you don't like that person. You know it. (laughs) And you know that you don't like broccoli. And you could live for a hundred more years, and it would never be good. There's no reason to taste it. My father, in 70 years has never eaten an avocado. Because he's just convinced he won't like it. And and as someone who loves them passionately, I want so badly, I say, try it! But it's two idiots talking, right? Because to me, avocados glow with this beautiful radiant light. And for him... They're, they're covered in maggots. <laughs> right. We cannot have a conversation about this. Suppose you are confident in your understanding and rich in enlightenment. Doesn't that sound good? Gaining the wisdom that knows at a glance. Attaining the way and clarifying the mind. Arousing an aspiration to reach for the heavens. He says, imagine that. Imagine that state. And it sounds really good. And then he says, you are playing in the entranceway, but you are still short of the vital path of emancipation. And it comes down to this last little bit. I'll read it to you again. Suppose you are confident in your understanding and rich in enlightenment, gaining the wisdom that knows at a glance attaining the way and clarifying the mind, arousing an aspiration to reach for the heavens. It's that aspiration. Everything is so good, and everything is so solid, and you've got it all figured out. But there's this little bit that says, I want the next The next thing. I'm ready for the next level. And he says, as long as you think that's there, you're not there. (laughs) Right? The thing that is standing between you and actually being on the path is that you're convinced you're not on it. And today I'll stop there. For more information about Zen, our practice, and how you can support and take part in our community, please visit zennovascotia.com.